It's Monday, February 24th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. After winning by a wide margin in the Nevada caucuses, Bernie Sanders has cemented his frontrunner status in the Democratic nominating process so far. The fight moves on to South Carolina and Super Tuesday, but in the meantime, establishment Democrats are nervous that Sanders may be too far to the left and could not defeat President Trump in a general election. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for this and more disagreement between the administration and the intelligence community. Next, life-saving organs, mostly kidneys, that are scheduled for transplants are trashed each year, and many are critically delayed after being shipped on commercial airlines. There is no national system to transfer organs from one region to another, and is instead left to 58 nonprofit organizations to collect the organs and package them. From there, if the organ needs to make a trip, they rely on commercial couriers or airlines to get it to its destination. And misconnections and delays could endanger the use of the organ if it doesn't arrive in time. Jonelle Alicia, senior correspondent at Kaiser Health News, joins us for how some organs go missing in transit. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Whatever your political view may be, the people are sick and tired of lies, corruption, and fraud. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. So we have a clear front runner right now on the Democratic side of the on the race to the nomination there. Bernie Sanders, a big victory in the Nevada caucuses. I think he had 46 percent at the, you know, the latest numbers that we had. Joe Biden came in second place with 19.6 percent. Pete Buttigieg, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar followed thereafter. Ginger, what does this say for Bernie Sanders campaign? This is Bernie Sanders gaining momentum, really building steam. He's now won two states in a row. He tied or came in a very narrow second in Iowa. So really proving to be strong in three early states. Heads to South Carolina, hoping to best Joe Biden there, who had previously led in the polls, but has had quite a bit of struggle recently. Really says that Bernie's building a coalition, as he likes to talk about, building momentum. And it very soon could be that he's unstoppable in his quest to obtain the nomination. And Nevada is pretty important because it, it was more racially and ethnically diverse than the first two states that had gone so far. So it, it kind of meant something, as you mentioned, you know, building that coalition, a wider swath of voters there. But still, there's this pushback from establishment Democrats. Bernie Sanders makes people nervous. The whole name of the Democratic Socialist, a lot of people don't like that and they don't think that he would prevail over President Trump in a general election. Absolutely. There's a lot of nervousness about the possibility of Bernie Sanders being the nominee. You know, you you suggested there the title of Democratic Socialist. Bernie Sanders is not a Democrat. He's not been registered as a Democrat. He has refused repeatedly to join the party. And he has been quite critical of the party. So there is concern among people in the party that if he were to win the nomination as an outsider, as not a member of their party, that it could cause a lot of problems. Also, the term socialist is still kind of scary in America. We can look at polls and see particularly moderates or independents don't like the idea of socialism, even the modern idea of socialism. And they worry that Bernie Sanders is sort of an uncompromising figure, that he's divisive, that he won't tolerate or listen to other viewpoints, that he will be further divisive with another divisive candidate on the other side. 
and that that will be quite difficult and complicated and emotional election for America when you have two figures, both of which are supported by a real sort of cult of personality that is driven in part not just by ideology, but by a faithful following that is sort of different than we've seen in many other politicians. What do the moderates do right now? Because Joe Biden obviously kind of he continues to seemingly slip down. We'll have to wait for South Carolina and Super Tuesday. But even uh, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, they kind of slid, slid down in the, in the latest contest also. So where do they come at it from? You know, with the popularity of Bernie Sanders going right now, how do they make those inroads? We see, as you mentioned, those four candidates, or at least three of them, really dividing the moderate lane and dividing up the moderate vote. Add in Michael Bloomberg, who's going to be on the ballot in Super Tuesday states. Add in Elizabeth Warren, who may be uh, sort of winning voters that might otherwise be inclined to vote for someone who isn't Bernie Sanders. And there has not been any real strong push to get any of them to drop out. Pete Buttigieg, finishes a strong second in New Hampshire, Amy Klobuchar, a strong third there, Joe Biden, a strong second in Nevada. Why would any of them leave at right. this point, especially if they're looking at South Carolina and Super Tuesday? And so we're not seeing sort of a push by the voters or by other forces to try to consolidate that moderate wing. We're not seeing a real incentive for any of them to call it quits. And, and for the time being, that plays continuously to, to Bernie Sanders' advantage. Let's talk a little bit about Russia. It seems like we're in the same old thing all over again. There was a recent uh, congressional briefing led by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, and the assessment there was that Russia, again, is interfering in the elections, that they're helping uh, President Donald Trump win again, but also Bernie Sanders. They're helping him in in his campaign in an effort to interfere with the Democratic contest also. That's right. So we learned this past week that Bernie Sanders was briefed about a month ago that there was intelligence that Russia was trying to help his campaign, that they saw it to their advantage to have him win the Democratic nomination. The speculation being by some that he would be much easier for Donald Trump to defeat in the general election or that they would, of the Democrats, prefer Bernie Sanders for a myriad of reasons. That became public on Friday in which Bernie Sanders did acknowledge he received that briefing. It was followed by criticism that he was aware this was happening and went a whole month and didn't tell anyone and only acknowledged it after the Washington Post wrote a story (laughs) about it. But this was a a sort of an interesting sort of revelation last week. And then we saw President Trump get pretty angry about it. He spent part of the weekend on Twitter complaining about Adam Schiff or other Democrats who had made that information public, although we should be clear, we have no evidence that Adam Schiff is the one who made any of that information public. And we also saw the president suggesting that it was false, that the reports were not accurate, or that even going so far as calling for Robert Mueller to conduct a Democratic Mueller report. So he was not happy about it for a myriad of reasons, it appeared, but is a sort of complicating factor in this Democratic primary process. Yeah, and the responses were just kind of totally different. Bernie Sanders said, hey, my message is clear to Putin. Stay out of American elections. The president went on, as you were kind of uh, talking about, you know, casting doubt on the intelligence community again. They ousted the director of national intelligence, Joseph McGuire, last week. There's been a lot of moving parts. And even on the Sunday talk shows, White House National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien 
said, hey, I haven't seen anything to this effect that the Russians are helping President Trump. But it makes sense that Bernie Sanders is being helped out by Russia. So it's kind of like, you know, what they're picking and choosing whatever they want to take out of these intelligence reports. And there are real political implications here. I mean, no one is talking about this without some politics underlying what they're discussing. Bernie Sanders doesn't want anyone to think he's getting help, but he doesn't want to sound like Donald Trump casting doubt on the intelligence committees. President Trump doesn't want to acknowledge that Russia is interfering in the U.S. elections, but he does like to make it sound like everyone's rigging the system against Bernie Sanders. He thinks that is a narrative that plays as an advantage to him. So quite the political, complicated discussions surrounding intelligence reports and intelligence briefings and then ones that get leaked to the public. And and one key thing about these two briefings or, you know, this one briefing, I guess, uh, is that we don't know exactly what Russia is doing this time around. I know there was a lot of social media misinformation campaigns going around the last time. We don't know exactly what it is this time around yet. That's right. We don't know what it looks like. We don't know what it is. We don't know what way they may be trying to interfere. And so I think especially with a cycle that thus far has had um, sort of technical hiccups and lots of internal arguments among Democrats about whether or not things are broken and the system is broken, adding to that uh, allegations that the Russians are in some way, we don't know which way, messing with the elections only complicates the sort of image or the perception people have of the process of picking a Democratic nominee. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. People might be surprised to know that as many as 10 organs a day are estimated to be moved on commercial jets every day. Joining us now is Jonelle Alicia senior correspondent at Kaiser Health News. Thanks for joining us, Janelle. Thanks for having me. I saw this article. It's called How Life-Saving Organs for Transplants Go Missing in Transit. And it's just so weird. I actually have two friends recently right now in need of transplants. One just had a kidney transplant. His donor was local. The other friend that I have is actually waiting for a heart transplant. So that is a much longer list to be waiting on. So I don't know when that will get resolved. But There's scores of organs, mostly kidneys, that have to be trashed every year or become critically delayed after being shipped on commercial airliners and things like that. They're getting caught up in the rigors of transit. And uh, this is all a new investigation that Kaiser Health News and Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting did. Tell us a little bit more about this. Yeah, well, we started looking into this in 2018, and I'm sure some of your listeners will remember that heart that that got left behind on a Southwest Airlines airplane, and it got halfway to Dallas before they realized that it was still on board, and they turned the plane around so that it could get back to where it was going. And that heart wasn't meant for transplant. It was being used for tissues and valves. So there was nobody on the operating table waiting for it. But the idea that that an organ could be misplaced on a commercial flight, uh, I just thought, what the heck? Um, (laughs) And so I just decided to start looking into how often these uh, situations actually occur. With these organs, time is of the essence, a heart can only survive about four to six hours outside of the body. Kidneys and pancreases, they have a little bit more of a lifespan outside of the body, but these things need to get from the donor to the recipient quickly. 
Yeah, that's very true. And with organs like hearts and livers and lungs, the surgeons very often go and retrieve those organs themselves. They're very picky about these, and they also do have that shorter window, so they have to get them where they're going fast. Because kidneys and sometimes pancreases can stay out of the body longer, um, they are shipped on commercial flights. People might be surprised to know that as many as 10 organs a day are estimated to be moved on commercial jets every day. So what is the official mechanism that is being used to transport these types of organs? As you mentioned, sometimes a surgeon will go pick up a heart or something that's more critical, but kidneys, which a lot of people need in the country, how do those get transported? Is there an organization overseeing it? There is no one organization overseeing transportation of these organs. Kind of the basics of organ transplantation in the U.S., um, the the United States is divided up into these 58 organizations called organ procurement organizations. They are nonprofit groups that basically manage um, the collection and distribution of organs in various areas around the country. Overseeing that is the United Network for Organ Sharing, which basically is the government contractor overseeing transplants in the U.S. But how it works is these OPOs go to the hospitals where people are able to be organ donors. And so the OPOs um, identify these patients and arrange to have the organs from people whose family members or who have agreed themselves to donate the organs. And the surgeons remove them from the body And then the OPOs are responsible for shipping them to where they need to go. But the OPOs have to arrange the shipping for kidneys and pancreases using this kind of cobbled together network of of couriers who transport it. And sometimes they drive the organs by ground, but sometimes they use commercial air. And so they take them to like United, uh, Southwest, Delta, American, They take them to the cargo uh, holds, cargo bays of these airlines, and airline employees load them onto the planes and ship them. And the thing is that no one system tracks these organs. Uh, There is no one kind of end-to-end tracking of these. No GPS is required, and the couriers and the airlines are not necessarily held accountable in any way if these organs don't get to where they're going on time. I mean, I can imagine, obviously, crazy traffic conditions or something like that could delay something like that, or even, you know, a a misconnection, all that stuff. But it just seems so crazy that they aren't tracked with an official system or, or some type of GPS, like you were saying in the article you mentioned. It's crazy that we can monitor a FedEx package or a DoorDash dinner delivery on GPS and know exactly when something's going to arrive from Amazon even, but we can't figure out some simple type of GPS way to figure out where these organs are coming from. You had this crazy story and there were, you talked about the heart in 2018, but there was another story that happened in Florida where there was a kidney who was en route to a place in North Carolina and it missed its connection in Atlanta. I think somebody just kind of left it on the side and didn't do anything with it. And the people waiting for it, they had to make a big decision whether they were going to charter a $15,000 plane or have somebody drive it on the ground. As we've said, time is of the essence. What did they end up doing with that one? Right. Yeah, that was a terrible um, 
situation for the OPO involved with shipping it. And so they did have to make a decision in the middle of the night after they realized that the kidney did not make its connecting flight from Atlanta to Greensboro, um, they did have to decide. And the the $15,000 charter plane would would have gotten it to its destination in Greensboro um, only about an hour earlier than driving it would have. So instead, they chartered a courier who came and got the organ and drove it through the night from, you know, basically, I think it was like two o'clock in the morning. And it got to the transplant hospital where the patient was waiting for it um, with just 46 minutes to spare. Wow, that's amazing. You were mentioned how some of these OPOs and couriers sometimes take it to the special cargo bays. There are airlines, Delta, United, American, Southwest, Alaska. They have special cargo services for these organs, but still it's an airline employee who will place it there. And I guess there was a change after 9-11. Before that, OPO workers could take the organs through airport security and load them on the plane or at least see it get loaded on the plane. Things changed after that. You know, with all of the security provisions after 9-11, it all changed. And the OPOs, the directors of the OPOs, the transplant surgeons tell me that it became a lot more difficult and they didn't have um, the amount of control that they had before because, you know, we limit who can provide cargo for planes. So what kind of numbers are we looking at? Obviously, the numbers aren't huge, but with such a sensitivity to it, these are life-saving organs that people need critically. What kind of numbers are we looking at that organs that are either missed completely or near misses? The funny thing about this is that it was very difficult to find any data about the number of organs that are lost or delayed because of transit issues because nobody tracks it. So as you can imagine, and so Eunice, the United Network for Organ Sharing, does transport a certain proportion of organs, only about like, you know, 1,800 organs a year, mostly kidneys, about 1,400 of them are kidneys. So Eunice only in 2016 started keeping computerized data rather than pencil and paper data about what happens to the organs they ship. And they sort of inadvertently created a database that at least identified which organs had transportation problems. So of this limited, limited amount of data from roughly four years, uh, we found that between 2014 and 2019, nearly 170 organs couldn't be transplanted, failed to be transplanted after transportation problems, and almost 370 organs had near misses that meant that they were delayed between 2 and 12 hours. Um, Delays that often uh, compromise the function of the organ when it does finally get to the patient. So that's by no means comprehensive, and there are likely many more cases out there. But because nobody tracks this data, the outcomes of transportation, we don't know the full picture. So when I was looking at this, I thought this was shocking enough, but I would really like to know the full picture. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a lot, but that is a lot of organs that are going to waste right there. So I'll be curious to see if there's any new legislation or or something that lawmakers might be working on to kind of streamline the whole process, at least, so that we don't have these going missing. You know, after our story came out, like within two days of our story coming out, um, four members of the Senate Finance Committee actually sent a letter to Eunice citing our story, citing the reporting of other outlets this year, um, asking Eunice for answers about oversight of these OPOs and of the transportation process. And so we're waiting to hear how Eunice responds to them and what action the senators take from there. 
Jonelle Alicia, Senior Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.